Coliseum Beach, six miles south of Sunderland. It's Saturday morning, the 13th of May, 2006. A man walks his dog and the windswept sands, but something's not quite right. Something's out of the ordinary as the man approaches the featherbed rocks. Come on, Clyde. Clyde. Come on, boy, let's go. Clyde, let's go. What are you sniffing at? You were up here on the way past earlier too. What have you found? Oh my God. Clyde, get away from there. Come here. Hello. Hello, can you help me please? Hello, can you help me please? Do you have a phone? I think my dog's just found a body on the rocks. Who do you think I should phone? Yes, of course. Um, here you go. Uh, call 999 for the police, quick. Oh my God, this is terrible. He called the police and set in train a series of events, a conclusion to which has yet to be reached. Over here. It's here. Look. I haven't touched anything. I think it's a man. Terrible. This is Testimony, The Body on CM Beach, a true crime podcast from Laudable. If you're listening to this, there's a good chance you've also listened to other documentary podcasts where a loved one vanishes without a trace. These investigations can drag on for years and across continents and never necessarily come to a satisfactory conclusion. But what if our story is the conclusion of another story? Is there a podcast out there from another far-flung country looking for this man who one day vanished? I'm Kelly Crichton, and on this series of testimony, we look at the case of the body on CM Beach. Fiona Thompson, who reported on this event 16 years ago for the Sunderland Echo, will guide us through what took place in the days, months and years following the discovery of human remains on featherbed rocks. She has spoken to many of the people involved directly in the case at the time and since. This case would be groundbreaking for Durham Constabulary, who adopted ultra-modern investigative procedures like isotope analysis and facial reconstruction, which had never been used by the force prior to this case. Individuals who worked to identify this man have since moved on to other cases, with this unsolved mystery always hanging over them. Now retired, for many involved, it is the only case they ever worked on that remains unsolved. Join us as we learn how this case unfolded and explore the questions that remain unanswered. Someone out there can help. Someone out there knows who this is. It's 2006. Labour are in power under Tony Blair. The England football team are preparing for the approaching World Cup. Twitter has just launched but it's virtually unheard of. 
The Queen has just turned 80. Winners at the Oscars include Crash, Brokeback Mountain and The March of the Penguins. Gorillas, James Blunt and Snow Patrol are all riding high in the charts. And on the day the body is found, Liverpool beat West Ham 3-1 on penalties in the FA Cup final in Cardiff. Featherbed Rocks is a little outcrop of rocks on the coast of Sayham, which is just south of Sunderland. It's on the East Durham coast. I started at the Sunderland Echo in 2005 and I was stationed in the same office of the Sunderland Echo. So that was one of our district offices. So at the time we had lots of these different satellite offices and East Durham was my beat, I suppose. It's a great patch, old pit communities, proper salt of the earth people, loads going on. I think the first thing I knew about this case was when I saw something on the internet on, I think it was on the Saturday, so this is 2006, this is not a time of social media, it's not digital first when it comes to newspapers, you know, it was a different era when it came to the internet and news. I'm trying to look, think back about what, what those initial inquiries were, because obviously this was just a, a body that was found on the beach, very little information to go on in the first instance, um, and it was about piecing together those inquiries, so obviously the police were starting from scratch as well. Who is this man, where's he coming from? Trying to find all the different clues that can explain who he is. And I remember thinking I'd not come across anything like that before or seen anything like that before. That's Fiona Thompson, the journalist who's going to take us through this case, step by step. It was the first time I'd ever gone to a, a body which had been recovered from the beach or, or, or a body that had come out of the sea. I'd been to other deaths where bodies had been found in rivers and such like, but this is the first one that I had personally gone to where the body was on the beach. But there were a lot of inquiries to come which I'd never done and it was a big learning curve for me as well. It was one of those things where I dealt with this many occasions where you're found with a dead body and you've got to establish what's the cause of death. And more importantly, is there anybody involved in this person's death? Because then that would put a much more serious slant on the case, shall we say. That's Cliff Down you're listening to. He was the lead police officer who worked on the case at the time. Since he retired, he's maintained an active interest in this case, the only one of his career which still hangs over him, unresolved. A local gentleman who was walking his dog and it was a regular thing for him to do, walk along the beach with his dog. The dog would run off and he shouted the dog to return and it was barking and it wouldn't return. And he was a bit more insistent and finally the dog returned they continued along the beach for a short while and then returned back in the same direction they'd previously been walking and again the dog had run off. But it ran off to the same position where it had been barking before. And again, the man who was walking the dog couldn't get the dog to come to him so he thought there must be something up. So it was the persistence of the dog which had basically led to the body being discovered because when he went over there, that's when he first saw the body lying and then he left the beach and contacted a, a, another gentleman who was walking along the, the promenade and asked him to ring the police because he didn't have a phone with him. I'd come in at two o'clock in the afternoon and I was contacted by acting Detective Sergeant Alan Simpson. To take over at two o'clock, I was briefed by the day shift as to what they had discovered and then I went down to the beach and the body was still on the beach at the time. I still saw it in situ. It looked unnatural in the way in which it was lying. It didn't look as if it had been deposited there by anybody. Its arms and legs were bent at strange angles, which would suggest perhaps that the sea had washed the body in. 
we later found out that there is no exact science to determine how long a body had been in the, the, the North Sea. However, the body, when you looked at it, looked intact. Its arms, legs, nothing was missing except, obviously, the sea creatures had eaten some of the, um, the body. There was no facial features to the skull, no fingertips to the fingers, no opportunity to take fingerprints because all the underside of the fingers were missing. The body was wearing one shoe and had a sock on each foot. The shoe had no lace, so we were lucky to have it still attached. But I later learned from the marine people that if a body goes into the North Sea, it's often like a washing machine. It'll strip the body of clothing because the way in which it churns, that the, the clothes would be removed very quickly. So that didn't concern me too much. Its stomach contents, the, although the, the, the body was sort of intact, there was a, a laceration to the torso, as I remember, where some of the contents of the, the stomach was exposed. But on the whole, it was intact, but decomposed, obviously decomposed. You used to ring the Nick every, every day to see what was going on, and you would pick bits of information up as you went. And Cliff was really good, had a really good relationship with him. CID were always very generous and very accommodating and tolerant of my phone calls. I think this is a, a one-off story. It was very different from anything else I've, I, I did at that point and ever since. And it still makes me really sad that we've still got question marks. The body was lying in the featherbed rocks, which are well known in the CM area. It's a, an outcrop of rocks which emerge from the sand. The tide was out, so obviously they've got to consider how long they've got before the tide starts to come in again. Tides are obviously 12 hours or roughly 12 hours. So obviously the, the, the first thing they're up against is time. And then they've got to get to the, the crime scene investigation where they've got to bring people in to recover exhibits, take photographs, all of which takes time and you, you're very much working against the clock when you're watching the tide. Obviously, the first thing that comes to mind, has the body been deposited there or has it come out of the sea? So it's important to not only gather the forensic exhibits, but to take photographs. We also have witnesses who've discovered the body, so it's important that we get their account. Um, we then have to have house-to-house -house inquiries because it's the beach is overlooked by houses. We have CCTV to gather, and obviously you're working against the tide. So we had a lot of immediate inquiries to do. And obviously you've only got so many uniformed police officers and CID officers to deal with those inquiries. So straight away you're looking for resources and we want to get the body off the beach, but not so quick that we miss anything. It's important that you work closely with both your uniformed colleagues, your crime scene investigation, the mortuary to have the body removed, undertakers. Do we cordon off the area from members of the public who might be using the beach? We've got to establish with other forces, there are 43 forces in England and Wales, all of whom have got missing people. So we've got to establish this. Is this a missing person from a, another force? Obviously, you look at your local forces, you know, which are contingent to Durham. So we were looking at Northumbria, Cleveland, Constabularies to see whether they're missing from homes matched our person on the beach. So that was probably our, one of our first lines of inquiry. We knew the body had come out of the sea, and this doesn't happen very often. 
but Cliff's mention of the tides got me thinking about where this body could have come from, whether the tides could give us a clue to piece together that information. So I went out to Featherbed Rocks next to the beach at Sayum on a very windy day to meet an expert who I hoped could help. My name's Neil Benson, Heritage Coast Officer. Durham Heritage Coast stretches from Sunderland down to Hartlepool. Uh, so the tides uh, on the east coast, the, the sea comes around the north of Scotland and comes down the North Sea for the most part. So here, that means that the current runs north to south. Uh, in addition, we've got two big rivers to the north. They've got the Tyne and the Weir. Uh, and as they come out, there's a plume of energy that sends the, the, that water further out to sea. The tides, as, as, as we know, are uh, six hours in, an hour at the top slack, an hour at the bottom slack, say. Uh, and then it rotates roughly by an hour every day. Uh, at Featherbed, we know that this is where we catch most of the litter. So most of our litter, over 80%, comes down the rivers. So that's, we know that that comes down the rivers to the north and it lands on this beach. In the past, in wartime, bodies were generally found on this coast at Blackhall Rocks. In fact, there's still a set of steps called Dead Man's. And then there's, there was a mortuary on old maps, there's a mortuary at the top. So, you know, for, for planes going down, for ships sinking, uh, when there was a lot of coal trade here, the bodies would wash ashore Blackhall Rocks. So that gives you a picture about uh, about the natural action of the sea. Uh, that <laughs> just shows you where things land. It doesn't tell you where things go in. But for Featherbed Rocks, it's only a short distance to the weir or to the tine. You look at the plumes that come out, then you know those bodies would, would go out and would come back down. So there's a rough guess. It's either down one of the rivers or in between here and, and the rivers to the north. So the answer to where this body may have entered the water isn't an easy one. Uh, the tides are such that it could have been brought in from far out sea or it could have come down from rivers that Neil mentions. You can't exist with having connections, friends, family, even if you become estranged from all those things. And every, like, There's loads of different reasons why people go missing. Like I've covered stories of all different types when people have gone missing and and being found and sometimes you never really know the reasons behind it but the reasons people do go missing are quite complicated I think and I don't think as journalists we ever even know a tiny amount of the reality of behind those stories but for this man to to exist for that long he must have had friends and family or at least be have some some connections in life if we think about our daily interactions how many people we come across people must have known him you know he would have been somebody's somebody's brother a neighbour, a friend, somebody, a workmate. We had never recovered a body from the sea this, like this previously, but obviously other forces had. There's a National Centre for Policing Excellence who gather exemplars of inquiries that have been done previously, and we liaise with them very closely to say, this is what we've got, what are our priorities? So we knew we had to do DNA profiling. We knew we had to go to the Maritime and Coast Guard agencies. We knew we have to potentially look at every missing from home and every force in England and Wales to see if their missing from homes match any of the descriptions of our body on the beach. So we then had to look at what clothing he was wearing, his shoes, his socks. We had to establish where the shoes had come from, where the socks had come from. National Missing Persons Helpline. So families will often post something on the National Missing Persons Helpline asking people to try and find people who they've lost. 
Louise Newell is the operations manager for the UK Missing Persons Unit, which is part of the National Crime Agency. It's the central point for the exchange of information on all national and international missing persons cases. We hold the national database of missing person reports. So anyone who has gone missing, if it's gone over 72 hours, then the police will automatically notify us of that case. We've got really good relationships with all police forces so that if there is a high risk missing person case or one that looks to be particularly complex, they will frequently make contact with us before that 72 hour period to ask for assistance in their investigation. And we also assist with the hopeful identification of all unidentified remains cases. You've got unidentified remains of persons who have very sadly taken their own lives of people who have possibly been washed out to sea and then come to shore at another point. Shipwrecks, you have a you know, number of people who have possibly been sort of transient and have just sadly passed away through natural causes, but there's no way of identifying them. You know, there is actually quite a lot of people out there who, for whatever reason, there's some sort of family breakdown or there's a disconnect between them and family and they don't have close relationships with people. And sadly, when they die, A, we can't identify them and B, family or previous friends or previous partners won't know that they're actually missing because that lack of communication is is standard. It's not unusual. On average, there are around about 60 unidentified remains cases per year. And at the end of each year, there are probably 20 that remain still unidentified. Once unidentified remains are located or a missing person report comes in, we automatically ask for DNA to be taken and uploaded onto the missing person's DNA database. If the DNA is taken and and cross-matched with all the other DNA that we have on that database and there's no match, we will then go through a process of cross-matching across all of the missing person cases on our database between tens and tens of thousands of cases. We will then send back to a police force a number of cases where it could possibly be a match. They will just need to conduct some further inquiries. When I looked through the National Crime Agency's website, it was quite overwhelming about how many people continue to be unidentified. There's some really chilling CCTV pictures of people from the past the last time that they were ever seen alive. Um, But also pictures of body parts, tattoos, and they've got possessions that belong to people that were found with bodies. There's artist impressions. It's quite a disturbing catalogue of people that have been forgotten about by the world, it would seem. Cliff and his team wanted to do everything possible to identify the remains. Cliff thought DNA would be the key to giving this man a name. We wanted to do a DNA profiling saw, and that obviously goes to the laboratory at Weatherby and they came back with a DNA profile. And at the time, obviously, there were huge advances in DNA and and I was delighted that we were going to get a DNA profile for the body because I was hoping this is what was going to identify our body, without a doubt, because it, it had to be because there was no fingerprints. There was no facial features as such. So for me, the DNA was probably going to be the one thing. Even if somebody came forward and said, I believe that's such and such, we would have then had to go and find either dental records of that person or get DNA and then compare it against the body's DNA and hopefully there would be a match. It's uploaded onto the National DNA database 
and it's also with Interpol. But it wasn't a flawless system, and despite the advances, there were influences out with Cliff Down's control that would impact on his investigation. Unfortunately, and I can see why some forces perhaps had not gathered DNA or indeed dental profile, but I would contact some forces who had a male of average size who fit the age range and they hadn't gathered DNA. Often people have moved departments and it's not being got or it's been an oversight or perhaps at the time nobody identified that perhaps DNA would be needed or, or it might have been even so old that they not considered DNA at the time. And because I'd spoken to the maritime people who'd said, listen, there is no science to determine how long a body has been in the North Sea. There'd been maritime accidents where people had been submerged in the North Sea for years and had surfaced and were in really good condition, hadn't decomposed because they'd been stuck on the seabed where it was so cold, so dark, there'd been very little decomposition, they'd been perhaps trapped inside a boat, and then obviously they'd emerged from the sea some years later to be in reasonable condition. So I couldn't determine how long our body had been in the North Sea, so I had to go on some of the older missing persons' records, and it was then perhaps they had not thought about recovering DNA. I remember speaking to the... um, the National Centre for Police and Excellence, as the inquiry progressed, and I remember mentioning this to them as a particular problem. But that wasn't the only problem the investigation faced. DNA expert Dr Stephen Darby from the University of Sunderland told us not only why DNA is so important, but why creating a DNA profile in this case, and potentially in many others, wouldn't necessarily prove the success Cliff Downs hoped it would. DNA really controls everything. So if we imagine what DNA is, people have heard the name, they've heard the term, you know, we, we know its uses. However, it controls everything inside our bodies. And when I talk to students, the analogy I always use, if you imagine a house, you have a set of blueprints for the house. How tall the doors are, how long the walls are, how many bricks you need, where the windows go. That is what a gene would be. It would tell the, tell the, the house the construction and, and the structure. If you wanted to build, say, a bungalow, you would need a different set of blueprints. It's completely different in structure. It's got less bricks. The walls are in different places. The the drainage is different. Then if you wanted to build a high-rise block of flats and so on and so on, then the blueprints are all different. That's what DNA is. DNA tells the body how to make these structures. If you imagine our body is as complex as something, say, London or New York, just imagine how many blueprints we have. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of blueprints. If a house was to fall down, the body could quickly remake the house by going to blueprint 55. Get the blueprints, have a look. Right, we need 55,000 bricks, three windows, toilets, etc, etc. And that's what DNA is. So it's really at the centre of all diseases. DNA also tells the cells when to grow, when to divide, how to make energy. And when this DNA becomes damaged, that's when cancer starts to happen, other diseases start to happen. So DNA profiling is exactly what we've been talking about, where we can extract DNA from, in a forensic terminology, we would either say the victim or the perpetrator. So if we find a blood sample, a saliva sample, a hair sample, a skin sample, we can pop the cells open using chemicals, we can then extract the DNA, and then we can analyze it in a DNA analyzer. Everybody's now heard the term PCR. 
So PCR is how we detect COVID. So this is, this is a DNA detection test. Now PCR is really good because it allows us to look at very specific regions. It makes millions of copies. We can then run them through one of our DNA sequences and it will tell us the exact sequence of that DNA. Then what we can do, we can then compare it to our patient, our criminal or, or our victim. So the sample was found at a crime scene. We can take the blood, we can sequence the DNA and we hold the DNA record. The DNA sequence is useless without something to reference this. This is the challenge of, of, of this particular case that you have a, a, a missing person here, you've obtained a DNA profile. Now, unless we can compare it against anything, it's meaningless. The two major databases in the UK is a national DNA database, which is a criminal database. If you've ever been arrested and convicted of even a minor crime, you'll be DNA profiled and your barcode will go onto that, that database forever. We've all heard of cases where murderers have been caught 20 years later by being stopped for drink driving, they've had a DNA swab, and that DNA profile has been unknown on the database for a long, long time. The UK DNA database is the largest one in the world, and it's really effective, it's been running for a long, long time. However, there's a second database, the UK Missing Persons database, which is with the National Crime Agency, and the two don't really link up. So the police will profile a suspect and run it against a crime database, and if they get a missing person's DNA, they can run that against the same criminal database. But if the person's never been arrested or convicted, then their DNA won't be stored on the, on the DNA database. This now becomes a bit of a problem that that DNA sequence will just sit on the missing person DNA database until somebody comes looking for them. The DNA profile just sits there. The system relies on family members or friends reporting the person missing. Somebody would approach the local police force and say, my relative's gone missing, and they would be DNA profiled, and this would then be checked against the missing person's DNA database and stored there. And the biggest challenge of this case is that there's a complete DNA profile of the missing person, and nobody's put forward a DNA profile that links. And the more that time passes, if it's not the mother or the father, then it becomes even more ambiguous. The mother and father would give us a perfect match. The mother gives half of the DNA, the father gives half of the DNA. A brother or sister would have high similarity, but the more we move away from a first degree relative, the more ambiguous it be. Yeah, it could be this person, there's a percentage, and there's lots of complex algorithms and statistics and, and mathematical models how this is done. But as time passes, there's less chance of a relative coming forward. The other issue is, how do we know that this person's relatives are still alive? You know, um, we don't know how old this person was. We don't even know the region they've come from or if they've, you know, and, you know, if they've fallen overboard on a ship, for example, if they're from a different country. We, we can't be sure of that. But the more time that passes, the more challenging it becomes because there'll be no first degree relative that will come looking. Certainly after this length of time, 14, 15 years, if they've not come forward already, report it to the local police, report it to the, to the missing persons database, then it probably becomes less and less likely. A high-profile disappearance from the area came into focus too. John Darwin was last seen paddling out to sea in his canoe on the 21st of March 2002 at Seaton Crew, about 15 miles south of Seam. He was later reported missing and a large-scale sea search took place. Four years later, his body still hadn't been found, so naturally, Cliff and his team carried out both DNA and dental checks against the remains found on CM Beach, which ultimately ruled him out. 
It would later transpire that John Darwin, who has since also become known as Canoe Man to some, was alive and well. He had, in fact, attempted to fake his own death and been living in a secret room attached to his family home for much of the time he was supposedly missing. In 2001, five years prior to the body being washed ashore, the torso of a young boy, who would become known as Adam, was recovered from the River Thames in London. This case had some similarities to the one we are investigating. Despite a DNA profile being built, there was no hit on the databases. No one had reported him missing. This would be the first case in the UK to use a new type of forensic tool, isotope analysis. I've seen it on the national press about this small boy being found in the River Thames and later they identified he was from a certain valley in Africa through isotope analysis, as I remember. So when it was mooted as an idea for us, I was hoping it was going to be he's from County Durham, which would you know, give us a small area, a relatively small area, or perhaps he was from Cleveland, or perhaps he was from Scotland. Isotope analysis, I knew nothing about it. It's generally, as I understand it, and I'll stand to be corrected here, but it's about examining the content, the chemical content of your hair, your nails, your tissue, because what you eat and what you drink, there are chemicals in those which are laid down in your hair and laid down in your nail. Obviously, we had to send various forensic samples, and I believe it was part of the femur. There was some nail that we sent, some hairs which had been left intact at the uh, base of the neck, and then we had to get them to the Queen's University in Belfast. There were so many other inquiries to do, and I certainly couldn't take them personally. We asked one of the uniformed officers, would they volunteer and hands shot up? I think they must have thought it was going to be a nice trip out to the Queen's University in Belfast. We contacted the Irish authorities and asked them, or certainly made them aware, emailed them with all the um, details of the officer, the forensic samples. The officer got to Northern Ireland and then he found himself being escorted to a side room. Not arrested, but detained because he hadn't had the necessary authorities. So the officer rang me and, um, in a bit of a panic, <laughs> complaining that um, he was going to be arrested and that seized the samples and he was concerned. He, that everything had gone astray and I calmed him down and we made some phone calls and eventually we got him out of the, um, the hands of the authorities and to the Queen's University at Belfast. The officer did make it to Queen's University in Belfast after all and the report compiled by Dr Mayor Augenstein could not identify exactly where the man had originated but it did hold some interesting information about how he had lived. I did have my hopes pinned on it I rather um, let myself down a little bit because I pinned a lot of hope on it. The report eventually came through. Lots of forensic detail in there, lots of science in his report, but in conclusion, it identified that the person was from Northern Europe. The person had had the same diet for the last, something like 10 to 15 years long, this, this person had the same diet, had lived geographically in the same location, had a very restricted diet, and then they were theorising in the report to say perhaps he'd lived in a, a care home or in prison, um, but a restricted diet. There were other things suggesting to me that this body had perhaps lived, shall we say, a rough life. They'd lost lots of teeth. The shoe that they were wearing was very worn and cracked. Worn, not by the sea, but the underside, the rubber sole of the shoe had worn to the point where it was cracked laterally 
exposing the fabric inside the shoe, so it wouldn't have been waterproof. Stitching was aware at the front of the, the shoe, so for me, it perhaps pointed to this person having, shall we say, a difficult or a rough life. It wasn't immediately apparent, but the shoe Cliff speaks of was to play a significant role in the quest to identify this man. No stone would be left unturned, in his opinion, to the point where a decision was taken to not only try to create a sketch of what this mystery person looked like, but to do a full-size 3D reconstruction of his head. But it was procedure to start with the basics. It was always hoped that this person would be identified because he'd gone into the sea in one of the local forces areas. Could he be identified and let's work on their missing persons. And in the meantime, we've got all the DNA ticking along, hopefully getting sorted out. And then we can go down the facial reconstruction if those immediate ones, those prioritised actions, haven't come to fruition. And I, th I also find it really fascinating from a perspective that, you know, all of our movements attract everyday cameras, electronic, you know, all of your finances, all of these things. And yet he's disappeared. And there's that gap in between this man existing and then them reappearing. And I find it really frustrating that there isn't that line that ties them together. Because how do you disappear off the face of the earth? That's a really complex situation in the first place. But then for him to, to, to reappear by a matter of fate and fluke that he was discovered, because easy could have been washed back out to sea. I think it's just a real tragedy. In the next episode of Testimony, The Body and CM Beach. And of course, everybody was intrigued when he came in because it was so unusual. I think everybody wanted to be there because he was just a skeleton with his left shoe, sock, and some flesh. The rest of them was virtually stripped. I always felt we were going to identify him. Always. And I always was optimistic. And even when we came to an impasse, you could always think. Right, okay, now's the time to maybe string half a dozen facts together and have a little bit of a theory. I always was optimistic, even to the point of the last throw of the dice was, for me, was he was going to be buried and I was going to turn up, just in case somebody thought, I know who it is, I'm just going to turn up and pay me respects. And I remember approaching it and it was just, it was quite emotional to, when you when the hair stands up on your, on your arm, just thinking, this is where he's been, this is where he's been all this time. Please be aware some scenes have been dramatised using witness testimony.